for his name shall be called Jesus because Jesus saves. Bless his holy name. We ask that you were turning your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter, verses 17 through 26. That's the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter, verses 17 through 26. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it with a hearty hallelujah. hallelujah. And would you stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 17, 17 through 26. And the word of God says this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that also those who have give, you have given me may be where I am, to see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made it known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. We see here in the highly or the high priestly prayer of Jesus, as Jesus prays to his father, his first petition here in this section is, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When Jesus says this, he's really communicating two important facts here. Number one, that God's word is truth and that God's word equals truth. And by saying this, he's asking God to sanctify us, to basically set us apart for his holy service on this earth, even though we're in the world, but not of the world. And then 
he prays in this same prayer that not only the disciples that are standing by him right now might believe, but those who will believe through the gospel that they will share will come to this understanding that God is truth and his truth brings salvation to those who accept it. Titus 2, 11 through 14 confirms this understanding when it says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's God's written, his living word that sustains you and I. We see in this high priestly prayer that Jesus verifies that he has brought us to salvation. He says in John 17 and 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He turns his focus of the prayer to his disciples who are standing before him, to the believing disciples that who will come later, that they recognize that it is the truth of God's word that will sustain them, that it is God's joy, that is God's protection from the evil one, that is God's sanctification and glorification for us ultimately that we stand in wait knowing that he will do it. And we know he can do it because God does not lie. Psalm 18 and 30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. We serve a God that is eternal and unchanging. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Since God sent Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus used the word of God to rebuke the devil that was tempting him at the time. Matthew 4, 4 says, As it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that Jesus stood for the truth because he knew that God's word was true. 2 Timothy 3 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At the beginning of this gospel, we see the union of Jesus Christ and his Father clearly in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
That word is Jesus Christ. He's the total message of God. He embodies the full understanding of God. He is God's truth. Salvation comes through understanding the truth of God's word. When we look at the Bible, we don't look at a book that just merely claims to have some truths in it. It is the truth. And everything must be measured by the Bible. It is the rod that measures everything. Psalm uh, 12.6, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, perfected and purified in a crucible, like gold, refined seven times. But there's something interesting here, guys. The way you and I respond to God's written word, and we respond to this word who became flesh, which is Jesus Christ, has an eternal impact on our lives. Since God's word is truth, if we reject the Bible, we're rejecting Jesus. If we reject Jesus, we're rejecting God who sent him. But if we are believing disciples, if we cherish his word, if we study his word, if we obey his word, then that's going to be key in our lives when it comes to one, our salvation, secondly, our understanding of God, thirdly, how we are able to live life more abundantly. That is why Jesus starts this passage off with the petition that should that reigns true in our lives every day. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning we ask you to immerse us in your word, for your word is true. Sanctify us, sustain us, as you have superintended us to bear fruit and to bring you glory. Compel us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Command us to teach your word and to honor your word by how we live before an unbelieving world. Constrain our fleshly desires. Constrain and capture our sinful notions. Comfort us and direct us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's children said, Amen. So we hear from the very lips of Jesus that he asks his father to sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. The sanctification of Christians is a lifelong process. It involves having a relationship, not just the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the relational component. And then there's another component. We have to separate ourselves in participating by being influenced by an evil, unbelieving world. Then we want to grow in holiness so that our attitudes and our thoughts and our actions change, that we hate what God hates and we love what God loves. This occurs when we enter into relationship and we recognize that we're in this world 
but we're not of this world. This world sanctified. Hagi Azo means to set yourself apart. It means to purify and separate from those things that are profane and then dedicate yourselves to those things that are holy. It means to purify your souls and to render your souls, your spirits, and your body that they might be usable to a holy God. It means to purify through the process of expiation. Expiation is the freeing of us from guilt and sin. Like that sign says, exit. It means the way out. Jesus Christ was our expiation because he's a lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He's made our sins as far as from the east to the west. Later on throughout John's gospel, you'll see this word sanctify, be used as an adjective, be used as the word holy when speaking about God. But at its, at its basic level, it shows that our God is transcendent. Our God is other than. He's distinct and separate from his creation. That is why the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6 and 3, and the one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So when we who are saints recognize that we are reserved for God, that we have been called aside to be used for his sacred duty. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 reminds us of the call that is on each and every one of our lives. What did God tell Jeremiah? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be prophets to the nations. If you were sitting in this sanctuary and breathing and can hear and have the ability to control your faculties, it's because the Lord has allowed it. And he has a reason and a purpose in your life. He wants you to be holy as he is holy. 1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, set apart by the Father, sanctified. He sent his own into the world. The Father reserved the Son for his own purposes, for his mission in this world. Now we see Jesus praying that God will sanctify his disciples so that they may continue in his mission since he's going back to the Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. This can only mean, guys, that Jesus expects his Father to sanctify the followers of his Son in the truth of his Father and then he sends as a bonus the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to guide them into all truth. 
He wants them set apart. Even though they're in the world, they're not of the world. He wants them reserved for his service. He wants them to live in conformity with not the world, but with his truth. He wants them to understand the revelation of his truth that has been mediated to us or mediated through us through Jesus Christ himself and how he lived before us. You know, in practical terms, no one can be sanctified unless they're set apart for the Lord's use. They have to learn the thoughts of God. They have to learn how to live in conformity to God's rules and God's barriers. They must learn not to have a heart of worldliness. You know, having a heart of worldliness is what makes you part of the world. Because the world doesn't see the truth in the self-disclosure of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me, Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them did the stop right there did the sun not rise in the east today will it not set in the west today for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power his divine nature have been clearly perceived You know there's a God. You're just lying to yourself if you say you're confused or that there is no God. You know there's a God. Has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So how does he end this? So they are without excuse. You don't have an excuse. You don't have any justification. John 17, 18 says, As you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus was sanctified by his Father, and now he sends his followers, his disciples, into the world, and he wants God to sanctify them in the truth of God's word. This is the mission that he speaks about later in John, round 20 and 21, when he speaks about the fact Jesus says to him, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This mission shows itself earlier in John 13 and 20, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one that sent me. John 15, 26 and 27. But the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But the helper, when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He tells us that he is 
sent, he's sending us because he's received or we have received his teachings. He taught his disciples then, the Bible teaches us now to remain in the world but not be of the world. He tells us that we are to minister and to bear fruit for his kingdom. John 14, 12 and 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then later when we get into the heart of our commissioning that happens in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go. Therefore, now watch this. He's going to give you five things to do that you're going. He's trying to make sure you understand that this is the place, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, any special class, where you come into the body of Christ to be edified, to be taught, to be built up so that you can take the ministry of Jesus Christ out there. You have to go out there because they're not coming in here. Because it's not going to be comfortable for them to come in here because we're going to preach the truth. We're not going to water things down where they feel comfortable. So we must go. It says, go therefore, and when you go, what do you do? Make disciples. Lifelong learners walk beside them. And then you make disciples of what? All nations. All ethnic groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here comes the promise that he answers in chapter 15 and 16 of John. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is not a contradiction that he's telling them he's going to be with the Father because at the same time, he's saying, it's better that I go that the whole... He says, I will send you another counselor. Someone who's just like me, but that will be with you internally. Jesus speaks about himself being consecrated. And when he's talking about himself being consecrated, he's talking, we know he's God. He's talking about being consecrated by the fire of the, and the flames of the cross, what he's going to go through so that we might be one. John 17, 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. He's saying, I'm going to the cross willingly knowing that my sacrifice on the cross will redeem them and will give them the ability to have their sins forgiven, past, present, and future. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I know there's strange words here. I sanctify myself at one level. It's no more than Jesus showing his determination to cooperate with God's plan for his life. Nothing more than being obedient as Philippians tells us, obedient until death and death on a cross. Jesus is determined to set himself apart for the exclusive use of his father. We see how this fourth gospel 
bends and demonstrates that the central purpose, the central mission of Jesus Christ comes in his death, burial, and resurrection and return to glory. But listen here. If Jesus consecrates himself to perform the will of the Father on the cross, will we not also have to be consecrated that we might serve Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's amazing. There's an old saying in the South that a broken clock is right two times a day. But we see in John's Gospel that an enemy of Jesus is given revelation about what is going to happen to Jesus. When you see John 11, 49 through 52, Look at the words here. But one of them, <clears throat> excuse me, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, now these are people who are coming against the Christ, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He had no idea what he was saying. But yet, the Lord spoke through him clearly. Second part of this verse, it says that they too may be sanctified. Again, it suggests to me that if Jesus is subsequent to sanctification, that he must undergo something like the cross, then we too are called, as he's called us all the way through the Gospels, to pick up our crosses and bear them. Jesus is dedicating himself to bringing about God's saving reign on the earth. So we must be dedicated to serve him. If we suffer with him, we will what? Reign with him. So the language is easy to understand here. We need to be sanctified in the truth. And we must understand, if you get nothing else out of our time together, get this. Sanctify them in the truth that they know you love me or love them even as you love me. Look at John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Stop right there. Do you understand when we are present an ununified, scattered, disordered presence before an unbelieving world, they don't believe in us, and they don't believe in the Jesus or the God that sent him. Our unity, our oneness in purpose 
our love for one another, especially across racial lines, shows them that they can't do that. So what's the different ingredient in us? He goes on and he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they become perfectly one. Here it goes. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see, Jesus broadens his plea here to those who believe now and those who will believe through the witness of the disciples. He makes the assumption, as he should, that their witness will be effective. And he does all of this because he wants them to be one as he is one with his father. And then he goes on. He wants them to recognize that this prayer for unity is not a simple prayer for the unity of love, but it's the unity that is predicated upon their adherence, our adherence to the revelation of God's word that has been mediated through him as he walked with them as disciples. You remember earlier, a couple weeks ago, when we looked at John 17, 6 through 8, and Jesus said this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. But Jesus even goes to a deeper level here. He wants to flesh this out, the understanding that just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. You see, the Father is actually in the Son so much that we're told that the Father is performing the very acts of the Son. What did Jesus say about this? John 14 and 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I said to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells where? In me does his works. You see, the Son is in the Father, and he's not just dependent upon his obedience to him, but the Son is even an agent of him in creation. We see that again in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with him in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's an agent of creation. The Son is in the Father. He's the one that provides redemption and perseverance for us. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Once saved, always saved. But I will raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone that looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You've got to see this. The Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son. Their union is indistinguishable. The Son prays to the Father. The Father obeys the Son. Just like the disciples are supposed to be distinct, but still totally unified. They are to be one in purpose, one in love, one in action, one loving one another, one in submission. There's a union there. Also be in us, Jesus is saying. He's talking about that union from that chapter 15 of John, that metaphor that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And cut off from him, we can do what? Nothing. We're in the Father. We're in the Son, and they're both in us. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do even greater works that I have done. What's the end all here? That our unity, love for one another, submission will show an unbelieving world that God the Father has sent God the Son. He speaks of the glory that this gives him. That Jesus, through his task, has granted revelation to an unbelieving world. Glory is commonly seen in the Bible as the manifestation of God's character in the context of revealing what God is telling us. And he's done all of this so that we might be one as he and his Father are one. But he goes even deeper in verse 23. I in them, you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and look what he tags on and love them even as you have loved me. He prays for complete, perfect unity, complete, perfect love of your brother or your sister in Christ, complete, personal presentation of unity before an unbelieving world that is attractive to them. But then he adds this phrase at the end, kathros, which means the same as, which means to the same degree, which means in the same proportion. He's saying they need to know that my Father God loves them as in the same way he loves us. Man, that, that's right now, that's worth the price of a mission. If you believe that. 
If you believe that, that makes sense with all the Bible that says God is no respecter of person. That makes sense when it tells us that we're not only heirs and co-heirs and that Jesus is our Lord, but also our brother. That's a level of understanding that makes Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 make perfect sense. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the Lord of God that surpasses all knowledge that you might be fulfilled with all the fullness of God. But it also means that he is, if he loves Jesus the same way he loves us, then he expects from us the same devotion and sacrifice that he got from Jesus. How many of you, you have children and you don't expect something from one sibling uh, that you don't expect from the others because they're in the family? You know, our oldest son during his teenage years got a little out of hand and we're trying to bring him to the revelation that you know you need to simmer down and work with us to keep this family together and I had to remark to him a couple times you know anybody tell you we have three children anybody tell you two out of three ain't bad (laughs) so that means if we have to put you out you know I'll come by and visit you at under whatever bridge you might be but you can't disrupt what's going on in the rest of this house. So if God loves us with the same love, he expects the same devotion. He expects the same fellowship that he got from Jesus. Lastly, sanctify them in the truth and the understanding that the love that you have loved me may be in them. 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here he shows that he wants them to see the and understand the full range of who they have placed their faith in that he wants them to be where he... Remember, he's, he's returning back to heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father. He wants them on that great getting up morning to be with the sheep and not the goats, to be in non-smoking and not in smoking. That they may see the glory that he had 
and what he walked away from to come and redeem their very souls. He wants them to get a glimpse of his glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. One day when we see him on that great getting up morning, we will bear the family resemblance. There will be no denying that we belong to him. When Jesus addresses his father as a righteous father, he acknowledges his profound righteousness, that his judgment against this world, they're being condemned for their arrogance and their ignorance and their desire not to have any part of him. Jesus has already taught us in chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. So, pastor, how do we love one another with the love that God has for Jesus? How does that love become part of us? As a Christian, we want to be as much like Jesus as we can be. And part of that is that we conform to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and being obedient in every way that we can. We learn to love people uh, and to take ourselves out of the way, even if those people are unlovable or unloved. We remember when we were unlovable. But there's a problem here because Jesus requires us to love people, or he demonstrates to us that he loved us by dying for us. In fact, he says, there's no greater love than this. Most of us have no desire to die for someone else. So what does it mean to love like Jesus? I want to close with five ways we may have God's love in our hearts for other people. John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we see from that that God gives sacrificially. So loving like Jesus means that we hold everything we own with loose hands. We are willing to part with money, time, possession, anything to serve other people. We recognize that everything that we have, we are stewards, whatever we have is on loan from the Father, the Father who is in heaven, who makes us responsible to help others when we can. So when we see a brother and sister in need and we have the resources to help them, we help them. Secondly, 
We love in an undiscriminating way. That's the way Jesus loves. We don't love, as he warned us, just the people who look like us and act like us. Jesus even loved his enemies. He healed, he fed, he ministered to the same people that one day, one day after they welcomed him into Jerusalem, saying in Hosanna, the next day they were saying, crucify him. He washed the feet of Judas that in hours later he betrayed him. He made a point of ministering to the hated Samaritans, even making one of his greatest parables and making that particular person a Samaritan to show what could be in the heart of anyone who's being prompted and used by God. Thirdly, to love like Jesus loves means we cannot be selective on how we treat people. James strongly condemns any favoritism based on financial or social status. What does he say in James 2.9? But if you show favoritism, you're sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. We treat every human being with dignity and respect, remembering that that person is made in the image of God. We rid our hearts of all racial prejudice, social snobbery, religious superiority. But listen, this fourth thing is, is important too. We don't equate love with complete acceptance of what someone does. Jesus didn't tolerate sin, deception, or false followers. He dealt directly with Pharisees, religious leaders, and those who claimed to love him but loved their lives more. He called them hypocrites. He said, not all who said to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but they're only the ones that do my Father's will who is in heaven. So that means that if I reject your behavior, I can still love you fully but your behavior is ungodly, and if I love you, I must present that to you because your behavior will be your uber right to hell. So I've got to talk about that, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. Lastly, forgiveness is another way we can love like Jesus. When we forgive when we have been wronged, when our selfishness wants to hang on to that open wound, that wants to treasure that open wound, that wants to crater that open wound instead of relieving the pain. Jesus forgives us, and he asks us to forgive others as well. Not to hold back our forgiveness, which is sin, but to pronounce it clean and restored. Yeah, you may have to love some people with a long-handled spoon, you can't get up close anymore, but you still have to completely love them and do it with a clean conscience that is seeking to maintain the bond of peace. Remember, peace is described in the Bible as it relates to you that you are trying to keep peace. You can't make somebody peaceful with you. You can be peaceful toward them in all things. Let us pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, place in us a love that surpasses all understanding for those who are in the body of Christ and those who we are desiring and praying for to be in the body of Christ, even an unbelieving world. Let them show, let us show them our strength by our love for humanity. Lord, we will not capitulate, we will not concede, we will not give in to sinful attitudes, mislabeling uh, things that are, that are not what they are. But we will show them genuine Christian love and do whatever it takes to point them in the right direction. So build us up on every leaning side and let us take this seriously of what it means to be a Christian disciple. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen, amen. Praise God for his word. Thinking about exactly what he was talking about. Sanctification should that not be at the top of our prayer every day of our lives. Lord.